Well, um, she's right. I am a teacher by heart. Um, some of you guys have had me as your small group leader. Some of you guys have passed off your three-year-olds to me over the last few years. You know, one thing that I love, they said, um, we would love for you to guest teach. Would you like to do the plagues? And they said it kind of sheepishly. And I said, yeah, I've been teaching three-year-olds. I get five to eight sentences, and they're doing this. And then I got to be done. So I got a lot of words left over. And the reason is, I'm going to admit something to you. My husband and I have been teaching the threes for quite a few years now. And a few years ago, we had maybe a moment where I said, is this the year that we're going to be done? And so I said, Lord, show us whether we're released from children's ministry for a season, whether we just need to move ages, or whether you want us to keep plugging along. Well, through um, a book I was reading, through um, just some different things going on, he refreshed my spirit for the old familiar stories. And I was coming to Jonah, and I was coming to Ruth, Adam and Eve, Moses, and I saw who God was in such a new, exciting, refreshing way that when it came time to sign up again, I was like, sure. And it wasn't because the Lord refreshed my spirit for three-year-olds or that he changed and they don't wiggle as much or rib it when you ask them a question about the Lord or something like that. It was because being refreshed to his word made me excited to share it. And luckily for the three-year-olds, and hopefully for you guys today, that's what I bring, is just excitement that when we say, you know what, familiarity doesn't equal known. So I'm going to approach something that I've heard a lot, and I'm going to see who you are, Lord. Now, before I do that, though, I'm going to tell you another little insight into the life of Becca. I am a mom to three. I have a 10-year-old, a 7-year-old, and a 4-year-old. Because of that, um, our weeks are pretty busy, and on Saturday, that's the day that can go lots of different ways. So as they're finishing their Saturday morning cartoons and we're finishing breakfast, it is my habit to look at them and say, okay, guys, today, and I tell them what the schedule is. I may say something like, all right, this morning, Dad and I have a project we're working on, chores we're finishing. You guys, make sure your room is clean, but then you get to play. Do what you want. We're going to eat lunch here. Probably around 2, we will go out and run some errands, and then we're going to meet Grandma and Gramps for supper. Now, I literally do something like this every Saturday, and as I lay out the plan, my children should be learning a few things about me. One, I like to operate inside of a plan. I think a well-laid plan is a beautiful thing. I can handle surprises, but I'm probably going to need a minute to process how it affects the plan. Um, Now, my children also reveal something about themselves as I introduce them to the joy of a well-laid plan. My four-year-old is spunky, so depending on the Saturday is depending on her mood for said plan, and it probably changes with the wind. My 10-year-old, however, she needs about 12 clarifying questions, and I just walk away and say, we're done here. I think we're going to be okay, but am I going to like what Grandma and Gramps picked to eat, or can I pick? Do we have to go to the grocery store? Is that one of our errands? What errand do you mean? Am I going to be bored? So is there any leftover blank from lunch this week? Can I have that for lunch instead? She needs to know what to dread, what to anticipate. Maybe some preemptive whining might happen. 
but she just really needs to anticipate her day in full clarity. Um, maybe a little too much of her mama got to her in that way. Whereas my son just says, okay, and he probably only heard half of it because he's just going to walk with the plan, occasionally complain, but he's along for the ride. Mama said we're going to do it, so we're going to do it. And then um, he brings his book, and we're good to go. Now, as we get to this, we have seen God unveil his plan. And so as we study this, we're going to see God's character revealed, just like mine is every Saturday, my desire for order. We're going to see God, though, unveil his character. That was one of the things that refreshed my spirit for those three-year-olds. What about God is being revealed in these stories? So we're going to do it. We're going to walk through it. And as Old Testament and New Testament believers who have been made aware of God's overarching plan, we are going to see that God says in Genesis, he said it again in Exodus, he says it in Isaiah 45:22. turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. We know the often quoted John 3, 16 and 17, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, not to condemn the world, but to save the world. In 1 Peter 2, 9, the Bible says that we will be a chosen people, that we may declare the praises or the excellencies of him who called us. Because God has made clear that his large plan is for all people to know him, we can know that as he executes these plans, he's going to be revealing himself to us because we need to know him in order to choose him and then to praise him. So with that in mind, let's dive in. Now, in their kindness, they gave me like four chapters to go through. So we are not going to do the verse-by-verse -verse method. Um, instead, we're going to kind of walk through a few points. And the first one is going to be short because it comes as no surprise. The plagues were not a surprise occurrence. God told Abraham in Genesis 15, 13, that his offspring would be afflicted for 400 years, servants in a land that is not theirs. But I, God, will bring judgment on the nation they serve, and they will come out with great possessions. God planned for this very moment in history. We saw in chapter 3 of Exodus, as Moses stands in front of the burning bush, God spends many verses telling Moses what the plan is. And then on the way to Egypt in Exodus 4, God tells Moses one more time what the plan is. And then last week, after that first disappointing encounter with Pharaoh, God tells Moses again. And then as Moses and Aaron go before Pharaoh to perform the first sign at the beginning of today's chapter, we see him tell the plan again. At least three more times during the telling of the plagues, God speaks his plan. We know that God's plan is to rescue the Hebrews through these plagues. But we're reminded that there's a purpose in this plan. I love that. Of these eight times that I just mentioned, in five of them, God said, by this you will know that I am the Lord. God has had a plan for a very long time, but he has a very clear purpose in mind. God's desire is that all know him. And as we discuss the plagues and all we can learn from them, we're also going to discuss them with a very important truth. God is not asking us to approve his plan. God is asking us to see him, learn who he is, and just maybe we can trust in him more fully 
as we see his plan and his purpose unfold. So as we dive into the plagues, let's see what we can learn. Well, as we start the narrative, we find ourselves with Moses and Aaron going to Pharaoh to prove themselves. Pharaoh and his servants are there to see Aaron as he throws the staff down and it becomes a stake. Pharaoh calls the magicians, the sorcerers, the wise men, the illusionists. It seems like there could be a lot of modern-day words to go there, who are able to perform the same. And without missing a beat, Aaron's staff swallows the other staffs. What a great foreshadowing. God would be able to quickly show up their power in the days to come. Without having to retell the plan now, God gives Moses instructions for the first plague. We've all walked through the plagues in our homework, so we're going to look at some more overarching truths about them. I'm going to admit right away, I did not become an Egyptian culture expert. But one of the things that becomes very clear when you dig deeper is that the Egyptians were a very religious people. They had a lot of gods that they served. They had a lot of imagery. There's that famous image of, you know, the gold-headed king, the pharaoh, with the sun rays coming out of his head and a snake coming off of his crown. Well, that snake was meant to symbolize deity, royalty, and authority. So now that snake, Aaron's snake, eating their other snakes, seems like an even bigger foreshadowing and imagery that would have meant something to the Egyptians was God saying that he really was the only one deity and the authority that could take out any others claiming to be so? Just maybe. Well, the common thought is God was using these plagues to dismantle different gods and goddesses. I'm going to go ahead and put the commercial out there for Jen Wilkins' podcast. She practiced the names of those gods. She researched them much more fully than I was able to. Her podcast is excellent this time on um, a true walkthrough of the different ones. You find that there's like four or five gods represented either by a calf head or by a calf so that the livestock meant something to them in their religious culture. Um, One example is the Nile River was worshipped as this like given piece of sustaining life. So when he took that out in the very first plague, he took out something that they worshipped. One Another one that I found um, maybe the most relatable in this season of my life was the frog. So the goddess of fertility and birth was depicted by a woman with a frog head. So this frog, a frog comes through your path. You're not going to step on it. You're not going to let, like, how many times has the tiny little frogs been loved a little too dearly? you know, by some of my two to three-year-olds, they're going to make sure that doesn't happen. They're not going to harm a frog for fear that they're going to anger the goddess. So when God sends the second plague of frogs, and they're everywhere, they're, the Bible says they're in the bowl when they're trying to make their bread. They even try to go to bed and find respite, and there they are. Well, they clearly have enough, notice, because when the magicians replicated it, they did not take him away. They just added more to the problem. Pharaoh finally says, come and get rid of this. Take care of these frogs. And you know what God does not do? Simply disappear them. What God does is he let them be dead in front of them to the point that it left a stench in the land. What did the Egyptians do with that? Do they now fear infertility? Or was God helping them put a frog 
back in its rightful place as a frog. Um, Jen Wilkin walks through all of them. So I'm going to point you towards her. But what we can really see in even just a few examples is that God was dismantling the idea that these idols that they're worshiping, these gods that they're serving and protecting, are not worth it in light of the one true God. He says, what you relegate to the many, it's all me. I've got that. All right, so we look again to the plagues, and we see him dismantling the idea of gods and idols. Well, he was also showing that he remains in control of creation. Moses was not there when Adam and Eve were. He was not there with Noah. What we've got to assume is their passion for oral history was really strong. So what I love is that probably they, the Hebrews were seeing confirmation of their oral history. But we see this progression. God starts with their main water source. Clearly cannot be ignored. I'm sure they're having to go into storehouses. It affects truly everyone. And then he moves to frogs, gnats, and flies. You've got to imagine these are huge annoyances. They are unignorable. God has clearly got everyone's attention. He disrupts their peace, but on the fifth plague, he makes it more personal, and he moves to their livestock. He has now attacked their possessions. And then in the sixth plague, the plague of boils is going to affect their health. With the seventh and eighth plague of hail and of locusts, he's destroying their crops. That destroys their financial security of the moment, but it also just it affects the years to come. They're not going to have the storehouses that they need. So he has walked through and truly disrupt health, financial peace. And then we get to the ninth plague, and God isolates the Egyptians with a palpable darkness, a darkness that lasted three days. Now, I couldn't help but think Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days. Paul was blinded for three days. We've seen that God clearly wants all people to know who he is. Is there a chance that maybe initial panic, frustration, despair was able to give way to contemplation before that three days was up. If God's purposing is that the Egyptians know who he is, were there more Egyptians ready to acknowledge the one true God when the three days was over? Um, maybe. We would like to think so, wouldn't we? So, so far, we've seen God show off his authority over creation. We see how far-reaching that is. We see God break down the idea of other gods. And we know that the first commandment's going to be, thou shalt have no other gods before me. God is showing that it is not helpful to worship idols. He is the only one in control. Now, I am someone, I love to read. I love oral histories. I love biographies. I love the telling of our stories. I love listening to testimonies. So when I look at the story of the plagues, what I had to notice were the people in the story. God shows so much of himself, but he also shows how he interacts with um, humans, human nature in that. So when you look at the characters of the story, it's like each character has a counter character. We have the believing leader in Moses, but we have the unbelieving leader in Pharaoh. We have this believing helper in Aaron, and we have the unbelieving magicians. We have the believing masses in the Hebrews and the unbelieving 
in the Egyptians. And when we start to see these characters, doesn't it start to feel like the true tension we all live in? There's the unbelieving and the believing intermingling in a world where confusing, but God is revealing himself. So if we look first to the masses, we see the Hebrews begging for something new, but then beside them we see the Egyptians trying to hold on to their old ways. To the Hebrews, the plagues become a sign of rescue. They confirm the oral history they've heard through the years. They affirm Moses' recent words in Exodus 4. God has seen their affliction, and he is coming to move on their behalf. Now, to the Egyptians, they've totally disrupted their order and their peace. It may, it's making them consider, are their ways right or are they wrong? If God's goal with the plagues is to make himself known, then he's showing himself to the Egyptians through them. Well, each plague, though disruptive through their eyes, is actually a sign of mercy. So to the Egyptians, the plagues are the sign of mercy that God really wants all people to know who he is. He has the power to simply remove the Hebrews. We know that clouds of clouds or the cloud of fire that could guide them, God could have separated them and they just merely walked away. But instead, God chose to reveal himself to the Egyptians. And as we talked about in the beginning, that doesn't just line up with these Exodus goals. It lines up with his character throughout Scripture. Psalm 67, 2, Isaiah 45, 22, 1 Timothy 2, 4. There's a lot of examples where God says he desires all peoples to the ends of the earth to be saved and know him. The Egyptians getting to see God at work is proof of his kindness in revealing himself to all. But wait a minute. Back up. If the plagues are meant to be signs of rescue to the Hebrews, what do we do with the first three? What does it mean that God allowed the Hebrews to go through the first three plagues right there alongside of the Egyptians? Well, first we said we're not going to question. We're going to try to seek to understand and see what God's revealing. And you know what? God doesn't say explicitly why he allowed them to experience the first three. He does say why he stopped them. In Exodus 8, and 23, God declares the land of Goshen will be spared. He explains this will be so that you will know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. So God himself said again his goal is for himself to be known. Well, as the Hebrews experienced these first three plagues, were they reminded that much more of God's power? Did they remember the history of God as told to them throughout the generations? The God of creation was showing off his still remaining creator rights. By experiencing them, did they see God more fully in truth? We also know from Jesus' own mouth in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 45, that he makes his son rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Were the Hebrews needing a reminder that being rescued from the Egyptians wouldn't mean rescue from all hard things on earth? Was God reminding them, and so us, that all people are equal in their need of him, no one can be set apart unless it's through him. And then one of the most convicting challenges, can we admit that to be willing to be uncomfortable 
while God makes sure he's known to other people? Well, what we do know is that he set apart a people, and in so doing, the Hebrews knew they were set apart, and the Egyptians knew that they were set apart. Well, so we see the masses. What about the helpers? We've already talked about the magicians in our small group, so I won't discuss them for too long, but there are some interesting things to note. Notice they're in the lives of their leader, Pharaoh, due to his lack, just like Aaron is there to help his leader, Moses, due to Moses' perceived lack. The magicians have used their intellect to create this close position with the Pharaoh. Pharaoh is able to call on them to replicate the signs that the Lord uses. They're able to turn their staff into a snake, as well as the first two plagues of water to blood and frogs. At the third plague, they can't replicate it. Isn't it kind of interesting, maybe a little arrogant as well, that they say, well, if we can't do it, nobody can. But then they say, it's got to be the finger of God. Now, we know that wasn't enough to convince Pharaoh. And interestingly enough, because they're still there, close enough to Pharaoh, it wasn't enough for them to change their position either. They may have known this has got to be the finger of God, but they remained close to Pharaoh. I mean, have we ever known something was wrong but not changed our position because we like the power or the standing we have? Have we ever compromised on a belief to remain in good standing with somebody? The magicians were ready to recognize this powerful God, but they weren't ready to sacrifice position. Well, meanwhile, we see Aaron, Moses' helper. He's still a symbol of the leader's lack, but he's also a symbol of God's compassion. We know from Proverbs 27, 17, that God believes just as iron sharpens iron, so people can sharpen each other. We know from Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 that God values community, and he knows that in community we can spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Aaron may have come after Moses' questioning, but we can still see God's compassion for man to share the load with each other. What a contrast we find in Aaron and the magicians. We already know we can't do it all or know it all, and so does God. When we look at the magicians and Aaron, we see reminders to put ourselves in close community with those who help us fulfill the Lord's mission. We're reminded to check ourselves to make sure we're valuing the Lord and his work first, not our position, our status, or our ambition in where we place ourselves. Well, then we move to the characters with the most lines, Pharaoh and Moses. Now, Moses, we've given so much time to him. It took, us, took him so long to get to this obedient place, but now he's here. The plan's in motion. We don't hear complaints and questioning. We see him going along with the plan. What a great position for him to be because it allows God to be the true voice of leadership. We see God fulfilling his promise to give him the words. I love that after God gave Moses the plan, so many times in like sky view details, there was so many questions or arguments, but now that we're in the middle of the plan, Moses is fine with God giving him the step-by-step. He doesn't know whether there's going to be four plagues, 10 plagues, 24 plagues. He doesn't know how many times he's got to do this. He's simply walking with God and letting God reveal the next step as he needs it. And then there's Pharaoh. The culture set him up as a godlike figure. 
He doesn't have to look after others because others consider him. He has people who who supply what he needs. I mean, I imagine he thinks the magicians are not due to his lack, but due to what he deserves. He's in a great position, a comfortable and enviable position. As the plagues start and then throughout, Pharaoh, though, has to watch his authority and his abilities be publicly torn apart. His tightly held image becomes broken as he has to rely on the God of Moses and Aaron to stop the uncomfortable. In order to hold on to his image, he tries to negotiate terms, find ways to come out as though he is still in control. Doesn't it make sense that he's the last one to succumb to God's power? He has the most to lose. There's a phrase, though, before time is up that we have got to deal with. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh's heart remained hard. For the first half of the plagues, it's simply a description of Pharaoh. It's unarguable. And, but then in plagues 6, 8, and 9, we're told that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. I mean, it's already an uncomfortable converse, conversation to talk about somebody who is so hardened that he's letting his people suffer to the point that Pharaoh was. But it's a different kind of uncomfortable when we talk about God hardening Pharaoh's heart so that the people can't go and the plagues continue until we remember, and we need to remember two things. One is that God had a purpose. He desires that all people know him. How many times have I said that today, right? He desires all people to know him. These plagues are revealing who he is, what he is capable of, and what he is in control of. Notice God hardened Pharaoh's heart as early as plague six, but it was plague seven when we're told that there were servants of Pharaoh who believed the warning feared the Lord, and then took measures to bring their livestock in to save them from the hail. The plagues continuing gave more Egyptians a chance to know and believe. The second thing we remember is who the deliverer is. Last week we had that question that had us write down all the I blank statements the Lord had made in just a few verses. Among those statements were the promise that I will deliver you, I will redeem you, I established my covenant, I have remembered, and I will be your God. When Moses, the author of Exodus, reminds us that the Lord had a hand in hardening Pharaoh's heart, it makes sure all readers know who remains in control. God is not waiting for Pharaoh to change his mind. God is waiting until he, God, has seen that all people have had a chance to see who he is. He's in charge of the number of the plagues and the timing of the Hebrews' release. It really does kind of make come alive so that no man can boast. Pharaoh cannot say, I did that. Well, that was a lot. As we finish up this week, there are some things um, that we need to note. Like, I entitled this The Tension that tension of living as the rescued among those who don't know God or who have refused God. And isn't that what we are? If we have believed in Jesus and confessed our sin before God, then we live in the promise of eternal rescue. We are those who live in light of God's rescue through Jesus in a world that has largely 
either not heard or has rejected his name. You know, like the Hebrews, there are times that living in this foreign land, we will also have to experience the hard things. Sometimes we get to see clearly what he saves us from. But either way, can we rest in the promise of his rescue? Do we try to hold on to our power? Do we try to hold on to our own ways or our own facade of influence or position? What are the idols the Lord has to dismantle before we can fully rest in the promise of rescue and the evidence that he's at work? We're not slaves to a pharaoh. But the Lord wants us to work at our relationship with him by removing those things that we let become king. We need to succumb to God's direction and be a part of his mission. The Hebrews living light of his rescue plan, just like we are. So how are we trusting the rescuer? Are we so busy fighting his plan that we're not looking for how he's at work? Are we seeing him for who he really is and then leaning in and trusting him? So as we walk in to the next week, this final plague, can we rest in him as the rescuer and knowing that we too are the rescued? Can we see what he reveals about himself to us this week? Let's say a quick prayer and then we'll go rescue those kiddos, all right? Uh, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your scripture that teaches us who you are. God, we know that we set up for ourselves barriers, that we have habits that make us slow to obey. God, help us to recognize even just one way you're asking us to let a wall crumble, to see you more fully, and then to rest in who you are and the promises that we can know to be true. Thank you for loving us so big. Help us to obey you first and to love you most. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.